This episode of the Second Floor Podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on millennials. Learn more at ecfoundation.org. Hi, my name is Amir, Amir Mohadri. I am a respiratory therapist and uh, a little bit about me. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of soccer, as you can tell. Um, I like playing sports, golf, a uh, whole, whole host of uh, physical activities as you will, but um, yeah. My name is Marco Manorino. I'm a family physician here in Edmonton. Uh, I work at an academic teaching site at the Northeast Community Health Center. So that means I have medical students and medical residents working with me um, essentially all of the time. Um, I also am involved in primary care networks here in Edmonton, which um, provide kind of extra services that you wouldn't normally get in a family doctor's offices, office, things like dietitian. Uh, mental health counseling, kinesiology, etc. Hi, my name is Natasha Osmond, and I am the owner of Holistically Fit. I am a holistic health practitioner, specializing in nutrition, personal training, lymph, and especially gut health. My name is Stephen Chorba. I'm actually a shit disturber trapped inside of an artist's body. Um, so I'm I'm an artist, a community builder. And now I'm um, rebuilding the healthcare system from the bottom up. I'm Tanya McDonald. I work as professionally as an agriculture research tech. I'm a mom and I'm a baker. Hi guys, um, my name is Neha Suresh. I'm a physician uh, at, um, uh, here in Edmonton, Alberta. I work in pediatric immunology and infectious disease. Um, and thanks for having me. I'm here to talk about um, and help uh, navigate whoever's listening through the pandemic today. And uh, you know, part of my job as a physician is to be uh, an advocate for um, people um, so that they, you know, have good, uh, make good, sound medical decisions based on what's going on. And so I'm here to help interpret some of that. My name is Noah. Um, I'm now working as a registered nurse. I've been working as a registered nurse for the past year and some, and graduating right in the midst of a global pandemic uh, was a, I don't know, it wasn't exactly a difficult thing for myself because it came into the stance of like, you chose this role. This is part of the role. You can't just be like, oh wait, something negative's happening, I have to step away. And now being able to have a conversation around COVID and the intricacies of it and the intertwinings of things that aren't talked about on a global stage is the reason for being a part of such conversation and wanting to add my point of view and share kind of some things that I've taken in for myself on a personal place as well as some experiences in working with a variety of different people who are either diagnosed with COVID, living with people who have COVID, um, or just in different health uh, standpoints of conditions and variances of health. My name is Sajad Fazil. I'm 
I'm a postdoctoral associate at the University of Calgary, and I'm currently conducting research on COVID-19 misinformation and vaccine hesitancy. How does your, uh, you know, your your job, your occupation, how does it, how has it tied into into the pandemic? Has, you know, have you seen changes? Have you seen, you know, the the people that you work with, you know, clients, patients, that 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 type of thing? Do you do you find things have have changed drastically in your in your in your work life? For myself, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was working as a respiratory therapist with a sleep clinic. So I was working with patients dealing with sleep issues, um, CPAP, BiPAP, you might've heard about these things. Um, I was doing home care. So in terms of uh, my patients and my clientele, it was very, um, it was very specific. Um, and as soon as, as soon as the pandemic hit, I actually remember I was with, um, I was with my parents actually out in Ontario. And when we were, we were all together and I was realizing, and they called us and said, Hey, you know, I don't think we're going to go back to the office for at least a week and blah, 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 and this and that. And at the time we, we knew it was going on, but, um, you could just tell I was, I was thinking, wow, if I come back, am I still going to have a job? Are they still going to want me on? You know, we have, we will definitely be able, you know, we're going to go through all these different motions in the company. Who knows if they're going to keep everyone on and you know, looking at the looking at the amount of people that they had already and maybe maybe i'd be let go but you know thank god that didn't happen and all that all that good stuff but um yeah in the beginning it was it was a little bit uh, scary kind of dealing with that in terms of patients i think the patients that i that i see um they have sleep sleep issues which are derived by um upper airway um diseases where the airway closes they stop breathing at night sleep apnea is the main thing there but i think you know it didn't really affect my patients and the different patients that i saw but what i really started to see was people asking me really deep intimate questions about very simple things like breathing carbon dioxide you know um, is this going to help me with uh if i get covid is this it was it was it was really interesting to see that to see the kind of different um you know the the conversations kind of change as uh, as these as the pandemic kind of went on. Um, I actually stopped working with um, as a as a sleep therapist about a month ago, and I've been with um, the CDC and AHS working as a contact tracer for um, for the pandemic we're in. So yeah, my my current position is um, as a as a contact tracer investigator. So what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, on a full-time basis, is, you know, we get, we get the we get the case. Someone's positive for the COVID virus. Um, I make my call. I conduct an investigation. Gather any contacts they've had in the last 14 days. Um, it's quite interesting, actually. It's shown me a lot about, you know, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know about the virus, and uh, this is kind of. It's been a bit of an eye opener for sure, because it not only does it talk about you know what what the virus does and the incubation period and all the science behind it, but also it's shown me the kind of um, conversations that I'm having with with people that you know might not really believe in it, might not really want to even answer the call, you know, might not want to tell me the intimate questions that I might be asking, which is fair, but it really it, you know it's it, it's a mix of sociology I would say and medicine is where they kind of meet um, in the middle. So it's been, it's been really interesting, like the kind of conversations that I've had um, 
with people that are very, very diligent with their, with their, you know, their quarantining and their isolation and keeping their, um, keeping their, um, cohorts small. And then there's also the people that tell me, oh yeah, you know, yeah. Last week I was over here. I was at this place. The next day I was here. Yeah. I've been hanging out. Okay. Well, I can't, I can't penalize you, but I'm glad you told me. So at least now we can go into it and find out, you know, where this, where you got it from. So it's been, it's been very interesting. A lot of the risk mitigation, that's sort of the realm of public health. So things like, you know, uh, lockdowns and then, you know, uh, vaccine rollout, um, things around schools and school closures and things like that. So those are the big things at sort of my level. What I deal with mostly is trying to educate my patients about number one, what's going on. Number two, what they should be doing, which is sort of the best evidence based things they should be doing to safeguard their own health. Um, in addition with COVID, there's also kind of this, you might hear like the shadow pandemic or um, kind of all these different terms to describe um, essentially people being too afraid to seek medical care. Um, so they don't want to go to a hospital or don't want to go to a clinic, but they actually have like significant health issues going on. Um, and so we've noticed that, you know, people are, this was more sort of earlier in the pandemic that people were very afraid to go to their doctor. And as such, they just let health issues brew until they got to the point where they were very sick. Um, and also there's the, you know, un undiagnosed cancers, uh, you know, a screening that's not being done, etc. So a lot of my job is to kind of make myself available through non-traditional means like phone appointments, virtual care appointments, just so that if somebody is sick or has a health question, they're not just sitting at home too scared to go get it dealt with and then leading to more problems uh, for them down the road. So holistically, what we can do to help you stay healthy, whether it's not getting COVID or not getting any other illness, we have to get back to basics. How's your mindset? How's your sleep? Are you hydrated? And I'm not talking about, are you drinking the water, but are yourselves absorbing the water and putting it where it needs to go? Are you, how's your bowel movements? How are you peeing every day? Are you having fun? So it's not just calories in, calories out, not just macros or movement and burning calories. Sometimes it's the things that we can't really measure and it's subjective. And it's not, health isn't always measured in lab works or in, in weight. It's measured more, it's more dynamic. So it's measured in, in function. Um, so what I do as a physician is I, my, I have a very specific type of patient population. I take care of adults and children who have compromised immune systems. And so when you have a compromised immune system, you are at higher risk of all types of infections. And um, for some people with compromised immune systems, they are at higher risk of bad outcomes with COVID. Um, and and uh, so part of my you know personal patient population is that I want to provide the best possible information about the pandemic um, for, uh, for number one, that patient population. But even in the broader sense of that, I have a, you know, solid medical background in immunology and infectious disease. And, and so um, I feel like I have a, a good voice to help interpret some of the confusing literature and medicate um, and uh, medical uh, literature that's out there for the general public. I mean, I do that even for my friends and my family as well, too, right? When it comes down to being in the role that I am and working in an emergency room at the Northeast Emergency, it's the place of knowing that people are coming in 
day-to-day, day-to-day of screening positive for COVID-like symptoms and knowing that there's people out there who are going to fall in that category, whether it plays into being a positive uh, case or not, or just simply something tied to an entirely different reason for presentation. And it's the realization that there's no way to, I guess, not be a part of um, such an environment and seeing the way that things are navigated where it's everything's a protection standpoint. There's the endless PPE, there's goggles, there's masks, there's gloves, there's cloaks, basically, gowns that we're wearing uh, in and out for each patient, each uh, contact droplet sign that's on a door. Um, And knowing that for myself, it's a protectionary standpoint for in my own health, but also not even just myself, but it's tying into the standpoint of Maybe if so-and-so is a COVID positive, my next patient's a 87-year-old uh, individual with uh, an extensive comorbidity list that if I'm not being protective of my own self and the ways that I'm interacting with this person who's positive, now how am I going to interact with another person who's at a higher, higher risk for the reasonings? And if I'm not being cognizant of that and taking the ownership of that, then how am I going to provide the best possible care? So I guess that what we have to recognize what's kind of... Um kind of difficult about this virus is that even people that don't have compromised immune systems can be at risk for really bad outcomes from it. Um, As we're, you know, a year plus into this pandemic, we not only know about the acute effects of COVID, but there's increasing data that long, there are long-term effects, you know, that you can have long-term symptoms um, and lots of not just mortality or people dying, but what we say morbidity. So decreased health overall, for people that have acquired infection. Now, there's a huge range of that, right? There's people that get the infection or are asymptomatic or people that feel it as a cold, but there are people that have significant symptoms Mm -hmm. and and then on the very extreme end of that spectrum, you know, have mortality or die from the infection. And so um, when you talk about the immunocompromised um, population, I mean, there is, like you mentioned, that fear is is huge. So any fear, if you remember back when the pandemic first started, we had, everyone is a little, you know, we were much, we didn't know a lot at that time, you know, and so there's a lot of unknowns. So for that was just compounded by like 2050 for people with compromised immune systems who've lived in fear of many types of infections, um, not let alone like novel infections that are affecting the world. So this episode of the second floor podcast is brought to you by shift by Alberta Innovates. Our province is a hotbed of innovation. Now, in season two, Shift's hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen put the spotlight on Albertan innovators working to improve the world, one ripple at a time. Here's a taste of the Shift podcast by Alberta Innovates. Make Shift by Alberta Innovates your next podcast binge. Join us as we take a deep dive with the people that are driving Alberta's 21st century economy. These global movers and shakers are working to solve today's challenges, create new opportunities, and build a healthy, sustainable, and prosperous future for Albertans today and for generations to come. Just when you think you know all about Alberta, we're here to shift your perspective. I don't know if I could stress this enough. We have a top three institution in arguably the most important technology in the entire world right now. We will prove a lot of people wrong by coming out of this even stronger. And the way we will do it is by finding 
ways to help businesses be cash flow positive and by willing to you know find the ways that we can help we're just starting to scratch the surface and i mean calgary just this uh, last month announced the fact that they broke their record again for venture capital investment and some of this is in fintech some of this is in a whole bunch of different areas where we originally didn't even you know have these types of core industries in alberta we have diversification in our dna we just have forgotten about it sincerely we are blessed in alberta to have all the infrastructure that we do have Tune in to Shift by visiting shift.albertainnovates.ca or your favorite podcast app. A lot of people are, you know, talking about the risks of t- getting the vaccine, you know, and, and risks associated to the vaccine. In your opinion, what's your opinion on the vaccine as a health professional? Um, and where, you know, what's... What, what what do you what do you say to the people that you know are you know see it as a you know as a risk and and what are your thoughts overall on the vaccine? I say um, my my thoughts on the vaccine or any vaccine that be is trust your healthcare professionals, trust your healthcare, trust the government that you've that you are paying taxes to that are there to protect you. Um, I'm glad we're talking about the vaccine because I've got both of my doses. Um, my, I have family members back home in Iran who are forced to paying, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars that they probably don't have for a vaccine that might not even be the real deal. And we're in Canada talking about the AstraZeneca vaccine that might have six, seven people out of millions that have shown blood clots. I mean, there are higher risk of birth control for women to cause blood clots. We're not regulating that. Where's the, where's the outrage for that? There is this growing, um, there's this growing dogma that we are, oh, that all of this is some kind of conspiracy against us, that, that the government is trying to control you. Microchips, this, that, come on, let's, let's, let's get with it. And we're surprised that we're still a year and a half into a pandemic that we're trying to get rid of. Maybe it's because we have thousands of people protesting at the legislature every week because they're upset about putting a mask on their face. You know, and then we have, we have people across the world, you know, not paying food for their kids, not, you know, bringing food at home, not, um, you know, spending money on clothes because they're more scared about getting the vaccine. So they'll pay anything to get something in them that might have any effect. You know, it's to really think about this stuff, you really have to look at the worldview and see how people are really handling this. I know for a fact that there's people in Iran getting the wrong stuff. The AstraZeneca vaccine is the one that's been mostly associated with uh, more severe outcomes. Whereas the Pfizer and Moderna seem to be you know, you do get some side effects like after administration, about 20% of people get a pretty severe flu-like illness for a couple of days. So, you know, you're tired, um, feel run down, you might have a bit of fever, uh, you might have muscle aches, that kind of thing. Typically, it's worse after the second shot. Um, I had the Pfizer vaccine. My personal experience is the first one was not too bad. Had a bit of a sore arm, went away in a day. Second one, I had about one day of feeling tired, um, 
feeling a little bit run down, you know, just took a Tylenol, rested a bit, it went away in 24 hours. That's my personal experience. Some people will have more of a severe reaction. Um, but the sort of life-threatening reaction is associated with uh, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines. Um, that's basically blood clotting. That being said, we know we've had some cases in Alberta, and it's a, you know, obviously when somebody passes away, it's a terrible tragedy. There's no, no two ways around that. But the odds are very low. It's something like one in 700,000 people that get the vaccine will have that blood clot reaction. Um, and most of the time, it's treatable. So that being said, the benefits of the vaccine far outweigh the risks. Well, I, I think we, we, again, need to take a step back and not apply such loaded terminology as myths or conspiracy theories or black and white truth. Like we're learning things as we go as a medical community, as a scientific community, removing that emotional, uh, emotionally charged component to the terminology we use surrounding this, this collective experience, the science. It, it's not necessarily a myth or conspiracy. They're just asking questions the way I see it. And true science can stand up and hold its weight against questions and being scrutinized. And that's how we make progress with science is asking questions, ha asking hard questions, putting it to the test time and time again, and seeing which, which method wins out. And the reality that we're seeing is that the vaccine, yes, it, it was produced in record time and there's going to be some issues with it, but there's also going to be issues for the people if they get COVID. So again, choose, we have to choose our heart. We have to, it's an individual decision. We have to choose which one is the best for us. When we talk about getting the vaccine, I think the most important discussion we need to have is the risk. We have to look at the risk. Is it risky to get the vaccine or is it more risky to get COVID-19? You're more likely to get blood clots and die of COVID-19 than you are with a vaccine. It is very, very rare occurrence of having a blood clotting with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So if you compare the two, this is how you look at what you need to choose. And I'm not saying that one person has to decide this or that. We all should be taking the vaccine, but how we come to that conclusion is by weighing the risk. And only if we understand how the vaccine works and how the COVID-19 virus works, can we say, oh, right, this is more risky. The vaccine is safer. Of course, I'll be taking the vaccine. It's a no-brainer, but you need to have that information to make that choice. Well, with respect to vaccines, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an expert. I've read a lot of the literature. Um, I think the information is going to be very dynamic and agile moving forward. So, for example, in Russia, they have a one and a two dose system, and the second dose is, in fact, different than the first dose. I, I think uh, from a global perspective, because of the, uh, the sharing of information and the accelerated cycle in which the vaccines were developed within the proper guidelines, I think we're really lucky that we do have five or six different choices and they're all very you know highly efficacious um so i you know i support the vaccination programs they have out there i know that there is one vaccine that has side effects that can lead to death but from my own personal experience the only you know the small the the data that i don't have that that makes me feel just a little bit uncomfortable 
is a clinical study I did when I had cancer where I took, uh, I was given these pills to retain my saliva glands um, because of the heavy radiation that I received and yet the pills didn't work even though two rounds of clinical studies said that there was a 90% or 89% efficacy that they would work. And when I dug deeper into those studies, it appeared to me that maybe they didn't test the pilocartin salogen pills on head and neck cancer patients that had undergone a few rounds of radiation and that were on morphine and hydromorphine and the test subjects were different than me and that's why it failed. In fact, it failed on everyone. Because of my research background, mixed with slight paranoia, if I'm being honest, I mean, I didn't go to Costco till probably in the fall. I hadn't been. I'm not a super regular person, but I didn't go because I just couldn't stand the thought of those all those people. But I can have my flash moment of, we'll say panic and use that term loosely, and then sit down and say, okay, where are the facts? And thank God my husband loves to research. And so, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'll just turn and be like, look this up, please. You know, and so then we sit and discuss it. I'm type 2 diabetic. I have, I'm sure, scar tissue on my lungs from a car accident when I was 16 from being on life support. There is no way I would even hesitate for it. I stood in my kitchen and cried when I saw the announcement that my age group, what were we, 2B, I think, my, you know, in my 40s, type 2 diabetic, could book it. I booked it, I cried. I cried when she shot me in the arm. You know, it's just such a momentous occasion, which is so weird. And why would we deny ourselves protection against this, what's been called the slippery virus, we're watching the variants develop. I'm really glad you asked me about that because it's like one of my favorite things to talk about because I feel really passionately about um, vaccines. It's a lot, you know, it affects the patients I see. It's part of some of the research that I do. Um, and uh, and there's, I agree that, you know, I can see where the confusion and the fear regarding vaccines is coming from. I can I understand because the messaging is confusing um, and it can be interpreted in a couple of ways. But what I want to like help, you know, everyone listening to, to understand is that, you know, the public health system and the health system values vaccine safety overall. Like that is a number one priority is vaccine safety. And so what you're seeing is new vaccines coming out for a new virus that are being tested kind of in real time. And what you're seeing is physicians and public health officials getting that data, analyzing that data and taking appropriate safety measures and pauses before making these recommendations. So it sounds like, you know, First, there's, you know, there's this vaccine and then um, and then when it, like, if we take the example of AstraZeneca, it's, um, you know, for, you know, good efficacy and it prevents, um, you know, mortality and uh, prevents um, hospitalization from COVID. It's a very, very good vaccine. But then um, you, we and so it was recommended to a certain age group and then 
we started to see because of the heavy safety monitoring of vaccines, um, the signals that, yes, there are these rare side effects um, that result in blood clots and lowering of your platelets in, cer in certain individuals. And so very appropriately, those cases were reported to the global community. They were reported to everyone, like everyone, I think we know about almost every case in, in, in the world because of, because of how vaccine um, safety is being monitored. Um, and um, people were able to uh, take the pauses and say, okay, you know, um, we need to make sure that the medical um, decisions that we, or public rec health recommendations that we're making with regards to these vaccines are not causing more harm and are actually beneficial. And so people have, have taken those appropriate pauses and then now you're seeing the the changes in that. So then the now AstraZeneca is down to, you know, initially down to 40. And now as of today, you know, um, people over 30 um, as have been um, okay to, um, to get it in Canada. So, so it's, um, you know, I know it's, I know that type of, it can be viewed as flip-flopping or, you know, how we don't know anything about the vaccine, but it's, it's not, that's not the case. It's that people are learning uh, about it and they're taking the appropriate pauses. And it's because they're taking those pauses because safety is of the utmost priority when it comes to vaccines. It's the most, vaccines are the most, um, monitored, actively monitored, passively monitored medical intervention that we have in modern health today. Like we don't, there's no drug that we monitor as heavily as vaccines. There's no medication that you've ever taken that we monitor as heavily um, as we do from adverse effects as we do vaccines. I guess when it comes to seeking whether or not to choose to uh, go and get a vaccine when it's available to you and ever now where the age, the lowest age I believe is like 18, so anyone over 18 is able to go get a vaccine and um, is it sign up? What's the word? Register to go and get one kind of thing. Um, but it's not even it's 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 the capacity for it to not just change your life, but change those around you and their lives in a way where you're no longer having to worry about being that person who could be infected and is asymptomatic. You're walking around, and you're feeling totally OK. Maybe you're feeling a little bit less energy. And you're like, that's okay. I just didn't sleep so well. But you actually are now illustrating a, a positive sign for the virus, but you don't actually know because you're relatively healthy as an individual. You don't have any pre-existing metabolic comorbidities attached to yourself. You're living a lifestyle that, you know, you work out two, three, four times a week when you're able to. You go for a walk um, every second day. Um, maybe you bike to work. Maybe you're eating a nutritious diet or nutritious like meals uh, consecutively. Um, you're kind of looking over those things. So, you know, your body, your, your immune system is prepared for it. But now you're communicating and you chose not to get a vaccine. And now you're interacting and you're on the street or you're in the store and um, somehow you sneeze into your arm, you touch your hand and suddenly you touch a granola box. And now the granola box is touched by an 83-year-old lady. Now what happens? And it's the unawareness on some level as to the benefit of it and the science behind it where it's the signs and symptoms that you have after getting a vaccine are simply natural things that are occurring because now your body is properly having to fight the uh, dis just broken down side of the actuality of the virus where if the virus came in into yourself normally at a hundred percent the vaccine itself is at a 0.001% and your headache, your fatigue, maybe your fever for 12 hours, your muscle aches are normal. If you're not having those, then there's the bigger question of why not? 
Maybe are you just, your immune system is just so prepared. You have an exquisite amount of T cells within your body, which are more or less the policeman of the immune system, which immediately kind of sounds the alarm for the body to be like, hey, guess what? There's something that's not supposed to be in here that is in here. We should start doing something about that now. If we actually look at some of the things that we do to ourselves, like smoking, being overweight, taking birth control pills, drinking alcohol, they all have a much higher risk of causing blood clots than the vaccine does. Um, And also you have to look at it this way, that your risk of catching COVID and having a bad outcome from that is like orders of magnitude. So many times higher risk than than the vaccine itself. That being said, one in 700,000 isn't zero. So unfortunately, some people are going to have a severe outcome. Um, And, you know, I think in Canada, the approach and even in, in some countries in Europe that we've taken is that we've decided that because of that risk that maybe we're not going to move forward with AstraZeneca vaccinations and focus on the Pfizer and Moderna, which we kind of know to be uh, safer. And, you know, like millions and millions of people around the world have now had these shots and we know we have lots of information that uh, and lots of data that tells us that, that these vaccines are very, very, very safe. You know, I've received my first dose. I'm going to get my second dose in a few weeks. I'm slightly uncomfortable (laughs) that this thing has moved so quickly but I was willing to take that risk because of the focus that I mentioned earlier on the clinical response. It's the only way the powers to be could get control of this pandemic was to throw a lot of resources into the clinical response and I think you know I feel pretty confident that you know, they got it 95%, maybe 98%, right? Uh, You know, our money is going to that. Your taxpayer money is going into people um, actively looking for side effects for these vaccines. We're not even just waiting on people to just passively um, tell us about their, the adverse effects they're feeling. We're actively looking for those adverse effects and reacting. And every year, you know, every year, not just the COVID vaccines, but all vaccines get monitored for these side effects. So, Safety is the number one priority. And so I, I, I understand the messaging um, can be confusing, but what I, what I hope that, you know, instead of feeling more um, discomforted that oh, we don't know anything about these vaccines, you know, why would I get it now, is that we should feel comfortable that these vaccines are being recommended with the utmost care, with the utmost looking at the medical evidence and the utmost care for the public health um, safety of uh, of. Canadians and Albertans, right? So I'm not in favor of mandated vaccines. I'm in favor of informed consent. And it's your body and you get to choose what you put in it, on it, have done to it. Uh, So yeah, I am in favor of informed consent. When it comes to vaccines, the necessity of the vaccine is sure, there's definitely herd immunity. Sure, there's definitely the ability for you, your body to recognize the uh, virus again. And it's been shown but the showing comes down to a array of percentages where someone who is just kind of at a B plus A rating for their health overall is at like a 90% of getting reinfected and having uh, asymptomatic sides. But if you're again, someone who is uh, 83 years old and you got COVID, now you're past COVID. And then again, three months later, you become reinfected. You're at like a 47% chance of not having to be rehospitalized for the virus. And that's the difficulty that we're facing is where people are like, sure, there's herd immunity. Why can't my body just react to it normally? But when it comes to the vaccine, as we've 
uh, been told across where Pfizer itself is at like a 96, 97% effective uh, rate. And that comes down to the amount of antibodies and T cells that are within the body and circulating and now able to neutralize that almost immediately. And that's the part that we're missing and isn't, isn't really being illustrated across because if you're getting the vaccine and you're having reactions and the reactions are lasting longer than you would assume that they're supposed to, that's actually a sign for you to be like, hey, why is my immune system not as strong as it could be? What can I be doing a little bit more to enhance that just a little bit more so that I can, we'll say, take away a little bit of that effect, but at a longer time, because this is kind of like a wake up call for a lot of people. And a lot of people are not wanting to wake up because in waking up, you're not responsible and you're responsible for your own self and your own health. And now what happens if you're having to be in charge of that? Where do you go? To hand washing, to masks, or to something else? But that something else isn't being shown. And that's kind of the difficulty that we're facing now where some people are wanting to look elsewhere, but then they don't know where to look. So then they look at the McDonald's sign and they end up at McDonald's again because there's an emotional pull. And that's the difficulty that I'm, I'm seeing now where it's easier to do that than to get outside, eat something a little bit healthier, make that um, self-aware choice of like, hey, that's, that'd be awesome, but I can't because of this. But then the because of this isn't something that's being informed about. So we're kind of like at a catch-22 where no matter where we look, we're still almost being faced with the essence of we should just get the vaccine. It's the easier thing to do for everyone. When you ask me about the vaccine, I say, why is it that not every single person hasn't gotten it? I mean, we're talking, and then people are talking about, oh yeah, no, I'll wait for the, I'll wait for the Pfizer when that comes in. What are you talking about? It, it, there's a vaccine ready for you. Go get it. You know, it's if you if if we want to move on, this needs to. If we want to achieve herd immunity, if we want to achieve, um, you know, uh, lower and lower um, infection rates, hospitalizations, that's the way to do it. It's important now more than ever for all of us as Canadians as brothers, as sisters, fathers, mothers, parents, grandparents, to come together and look at the importance of the vaccine, at the importance of together following the public health recommendations and beating this virus. It's possible to beat this virus. It's possible to live in a world without COVID-19. We're almost there. We just need to be together, to united, and work together, following all the recommendations, motivating each other, to get the vaccine and we will definitely make it out.